Thank you, worship team, for leading us to the throne where we worship. I invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Somebody get that. I think that's the phone. Ephesians chapter 1. Last week, we jumped ahead, or I say we, I jumped ahead and made you go with me to chapter 5 of Ephesians. But this week, we're backing up to the very beginning. And I, and I want to see that that song's a perfect setup for how much God loves us. We're, we're going to look at Paul, who he wrote to, and kind of the salutation of this letter. But the two big things I want you to see is the blessing of God and what Jesus has done on the cross. In Him, in Christ, who are you? Have you ever been looking something that you were holding on to? You look for something you were holding on to? You don't have to raise your hand. I've done it. I was on the phone in my office, on my cell phone. And, and the conversation went in a direction where I was going to look something up on my phone. And so I started looking for my phone. I mean, I didn't just look around the office. I thought, well, maybe I left it in the bathroom. So I walk all the way to the back hallway, look in the bathroom, went into Gary's office. I thought, where is it? And finally just started laughing and realized it's in my hand. It's Mom's Day, so I'll tell you this story. My wife one day had one of our young children, toddler, in her arm, looking all over the house for him. Asking me, where is he? I'm thinking, are you kidding? So you're looking for something you've already got, and I hope this morning in this passage you're going to see who you are in Christ, and Paul is going to reveal to you what you have as a believer. Because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, and yet he's still at work in and, and through you. So first, let's read just the first couple of verses just to get us into this epistle to the Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. That sounds like a typical opening. It's, ba it's basically the same opening, essentially, in about 10 of his 13 epistles. But I think it's important to stop a minute and just recognize, first of all, Paul, who is he? You ever see these things on Facebook sometimes where you say, where are they now? And it's like old movie stars or old TV stars. Maybe they were kid stars. Where are they now? And you click on there and find out they've turned ugly or something or they're in jail. <laughs> Look at where Saul is now. Saul, Paul's Hebrew name. We've anglicized it and call it Saul. We've anglicized his Roman name and call him Paul. And I don't even know if anglicized is a word. But Paul was a terrorist. Can we put it any other way? What did what did Saul, before he came to faith in Christ, what did he do for a living? He chased Christians. He persecuted Christians. Christians, at least one occasion, he was in hearty agreement with putting one to death. They didn't have ISIS in that day, but that's basically what Paul was. He was the ISIS, the terrorist of his day. And I think you've got to catch that to then read 13 letters in the New Testament written by this guy who used to go by the name Saul. Now he uses his Roman name, Paul. So when Paul writes, you realize, wow, what a work of grace. God has done in his life. In fact, maybe even if there's hope for somebody like him, there's hope for me. 
And then it says, Paul, an apostle. An apostle. In the New Testament, an apostle was somebody who had had eyewitness encounter with Christ. There were 12 disciples later to be called apostles, not to be confused necessarily with the gift of apostleship in Scripture. But the 12 disciples, one of them turned out to be a traitor, Judas, so they replaced him with Matthias. And then Paul calls himself one untimely chosen. Paul, an apostle, literally a messenger, a delegate, an ambassador of the gospel. That's what Paul's saying when he writes this letter to the church in Ephesus. And whose will was it that he was an apostle? It was by the will of God. There were times it seems like Paul had to defend himself, 1 Corinthians especially. He's trying to defend himself against attackers, Galatians also. And Paul's saying, listen, this wasn't my idea. This isn't by my will, and it's not by your will. You didn't get a vote on this. This was by the will of God. This is by the sovereign choice, purpose of God Almighty that I'm writing to you as Paul the Apostle. And he writes to the saints at Ephesus. Saints. That's the word that describes believers. Did you know that? If you're a child of God, you're a saint. Some people think when we die we become angels. That is not biblical. We are saints around the throne. You can read about it in Revelation 4 and 5. That's who we are. We are saints. It's our position in Christ. It's not necessarily our performance this day. But it's our position in Christ. So he's writing to the saints at Ephesus, which Saint Ephesus was a huge town, the fourth or fifth largest city in the world at that time. It had a coliseum that would hold 25,000 people. It's where the temple to Diana or Artemis was. That's Ephesus. That's the town that he writes. And he writes to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And I want you to catch that. He uses a phrase, in him or in Christ Jesus, a bunch. In fact, 36 times just in this letter. 164 times in all of his writings. So I want you to catch that your identity in Christ is not based on your performance or your popularity or anything else other than the, the work of Christ in your life. As you become a Christian, you place your faith in Jesus. And he says grace and peace. This was often his phrase. Grace, God's unearned favor. You don't deserve it. You can't buy it. You can't earn it. It's something you get for free. And because of that grace, you can now have peace. So the result of grace with God is peace with God. Because before grace, we're enemies of God. We're at war against spiritual things. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are just the first two verses, and then we get into the heart of this passage, just going through verse 12. But beginning in verse 3, you got to catch this. From verse 3 to verse 14 is one sentence in the Greek language. Now, our modern, modern translators have added punctuation here, there, and yonder, but it's 202 words, I believe, in a row, one really long sentence. If you write a sentence this long in English class, your teacher's going to fail you. But Paul is just fired up trying to explain what he's trying to explain. So he just doesn't, he doesn't hesitate. He doesn't even take a breath. Starts with verse 3. And let me read through verse, seven, verse 6. I want you to see the blessings, the blessing of the Father. So he's had the salutation, and then he says, Blessed. Or blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. So the first thing is blessing to God. You have blessed God this morning as you worship. Worship is part of the blessing of God. The word blessing means to speak well of. It's the word eulogy. If you've ever been to a funeral and had to deliver or heard someone deliver the eulogy, it's when you speak well of the person that has departed. It's the same word here. To speak well of. To commend. When we speak, when we bless God, we speak well of him. When we worship God, we are acknowledging he is God and I am not. There is none like you. All of my worship, all of my praise is due you. But because of that blessing, he's blessed us. He's worthy of our blessing, but he blesses us, not because of our goodness. Now, we bless God because of his goodness, his perfection. He has blessed us not because of our behavior, but in spite of it. Because if he blessed us based on our good behavior, we wouldn't be blessed. But he blesses us with his goodness. And then he blesses us with every spiritual blessing. Let me ask you, is anything left out of every? First Peter kind of says the same thing. Different author, author Peter 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, He has granted us His great and magnificent promises. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. Is there anything left out of everything? So when Paul says He's, he's granted you every spiritual blessing, is there one He's holding back on? One that you can't get? Have you ever felt the Christian life at times was like chasing a carrot that you just couldn't quite ever get? I did as, as, a, as a teenager especially. I came to faith in Christ. But at times I kind of felt like I'd do the spiritual comparison games. You ever done that? You ever kind of looked down the row and thought, man, she really knows God. I, 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 don't, I, I don't think I'll ever measure up to that. He really knows God. I'll be honest with you. I used to sit in church as a teenager and watch some of the people pray. And it, they would squint their eyes really tight and just look miserable. And I thought, they must really know God. Look how miserable they are. <laughs> and then I read things like the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's against such things there is no law. I finally realized, no, those people didn't know God. They were just miserable people. And you'll find them a lot in church. So I'm not trying to measure up to you or to somebody else on the row. I used to look at our pastor. He had the longest finger. I thought, he has to be a preacher because he could point at people. And it was like 3D just coming at you. And I remember watching him. He would sit. You know, they had chairs back here at that time growing up. And he would pray. And that finger just kind of extended above his head. And I thought, he's got an antenna to God. <laughs> I'll never be able to pray like that. I can't squint my eyes tight enough. And I don't have the antenna. And so we somehow look at other believers and kind of think, God's holding out on me. 
maybe I'm just lucky to kind of slip in the back door of heaven. God doesn't have any backdoor Christians. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. God has granted to you everything you need for life and godliness. God's done that by his sovereign will. He's blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul says that five times just in this one letter. Nowhere else in the New Testament. He talks about heavenly places. And Paul looks at us, looks at you as believers, and sees us already seated with God in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Just as he chose us in him, literally to select or to make a choice. The word chosen and predestination in this, ver- in this passage makes a lot of people nervous. It comes a test of fellowship. People argue over it. One of the best quotes I read this week as I was studying, I want to share with you. This is John MacArthur. He said, it's not that God's sovereign election or predestination eliminates man's choice in faith. Divine sovereignty and human response are integral and inseparable parts of salvation. Though exactly how they operate together, only the infinite mind of God knows. So it's hard to explain. Only the infinite mind of God knows, but I know this much, it's God's choice. It's God that did it from the very foundation of the world. That one day we would be holy and blameless. Holy, literally set apart, consecrated, separated, blameless, unblemished. That's your position, not your practice. When you come to faith in Christ, in Colossians it's this way, he is presenting you holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. It's not because I cleaned up my act and had three good days in a row. It was that Jesus did a work in my life because of God's grace, because of his will. I'm not the same guy I used to be. I'm a brand new creation. And one day I will face Jesus and face the Father before him, literally directly in front of him. Do you realize that one day you're going to be face to face with God? And as a child of God, what will he see? He sees the righteousness of Christ. And for what purpose? To the praise of His glory. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons. The word sons there is not normally the word to just distinguish a male offspring, but it's for children. He's predestined you to adoption as children with all the rights and privileges. Adoption was not typically a Jewish practice. It was very much a Roman practice. So Paul's writing to predominantly Greek background, Gentiles. So he uses an illustration of adoption. He said, God has adopted you. I had a friend that had been adopted, and she kind of was struggling over that. She didn't know who her birth parents were. So she didn't like the fact she was adopted. And I said, hey, wait a minute. You and I got something in common. We've both been adopted. She said, oh, I didn't know you didn't know who your parents were. I said, no, I I grew up with my parents, but God has adopted me. As a child of God, he's adopted you. And I said, here's the cool thing about adoption. Somebody actually came and said, I want that one. My parents were stuck with me. And I was stuck with them. All right? That's the cool thing. I don't know if there's somebody in here that's been adopted, but it is a great thing that loving parents prayed about and came and selected you and said, we want that one. And that's what God has done. Adopted us as his children. 
Human parents cannot impart their distinct nature into adopted children, but God can. What God has been about since the fall in Genesis is restoring to us his character and nature. We were created in the image of God, means character and nature. God's able to do that to the praise of his glory, of his grace freely bestowed on us. And then the work of the Son. This is good. Verse 7 and following through verse 12. In him, who is him? Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth in him. Also, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. Four things I want you to see in this passage. Because of the kind intention of God, because of the finished work of Christ on the cross and his continuing work in us, four things that we have. In fact, verse 7, in him we have. Literally it means get a grip on. Hold your hand like that. You're gripping it. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without any wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Here's the cool thing. I'm gripping these promises of God, but he's gripping me. And you can't break the bond of his grip. So the first thing I have is redemption. It literally means to ransom in full. It means deliverance. It means release by payment of a price. In New Testament times, the Romans had upwards of six million slaves. So Paul is writing to a group of Greek, predominantly Greek people, Gentiles, who knows this fact that if you were a slave in the Roman government, the Roman Empire, you're a slave for life unless a loved one, a family member, raised the necessary price. They could come and ask how much to buy this one, him or her, out of slavery. A price would be set, and that was called the redemption price. But what was the redemption price that God paid? The blood of his son Jesus Christ. We were slaves to sin. We didn't have the price. We were hopeless in our sin. And yet when Christ died on the cross through his blood, that's the channel of the act, we have been redeemed. Now the Hebrew folks that would read this letter would understand that they've been experiencing a thing called Yom Kippur every year for their entire life. And it went back generations. They learned it from their parents. They learned it from their parents. And it was a God-ordained event, Yom Kippur, but it was pointing towards Christ. If you go back and read in the Old Testament, the priest had to take a special bath, had to wear special clothes, had to take blood of a bull for himself to be forgiven himself, and then he offered forgiveness on the behalf of the people. They would bring two goats in, and these goats had to be perfect without spot or blemish. And one of them would be sacrificed for the sins of the people. The other one was called a scapegoat, and literally the priest would pray over the head of that goat all the sins of the people. And then somebody's job that year was to take that goat far, far away 
And here was the picture that people saw. My sins are leaving. My sins are being taken away. I've often thought, man, I don't know that I want that job because what if you don't do a good job? What if the next morning you wake up and you hear, man, or what, what, I don't know what a goat, that sounds more like a sheep, but you know what I'm talking about? The scapegoat is back. What does that indicate? Our sins have all come back. Here's the problem with that. They had to do that every year. And it didn't forgive you of your sin. It just kind of covered them for that year. Took them away temporarily, but you were still piling them back on. The blood of Christ forgave us once and for all. And it's the same principle. He separated now our sins, what? As far as the east is from the west. He chooses to remember them no more. That's the redemption we have. And his blood was the ransom payment. Second thing we have is forgiveness of our trespasses. Literally freedom, pardon, ascending away. Sin involves the bondage of your mind. Forgiveness is freedom from bondage. Here's what you need to know about God when he forgives. You and I struggle forgiving people. Why? Because we want to, but we still remember, right? You do something to me, and I I legitimately would tell you, hey, I understand, I forgive you. But I have a hard time forgetting that. John F. Kennedy said, forgive your enemies, but don't forget their names. (laughs) What does that mean? We're making a list, checking it twice. When I get the opportunity, I'm getting revenge. And that's not even our intention when we forgive. But we're human, right? It's hard to forgive and forget. I asked somebody one time, best advice I got on forgiveness, I said, how do I know I've forgiven somebody? He said, when you can treat them like it never happened, then you've come to a place of forgiveness. You you probably still won't forget it. But that's what God does. God forgets our sin, not because He's forgetful, but He chooses to remember it no more. You and I think, I've asked God to forgive me, but the next time I see him, all he's seeing is sin. No. When God sees you, what does he see? The righteousness of Christ. That's because of his grace. In fact, a lot of you struggle just receiving forgiveness. I think sometimes the reason we go back and play with confessed sin is because we don't, we just haven't experienced the forgiveness. It's because the devil's jumped on your back and saying, oh, God's mad at you. You've got a big stick. You better watch out. That's why we run from God when we ought to run to God. You have received in Christ because of his blood. You've received forgiveness. Hebrews said without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And yet we've had the shedding of blood. Jesus died in our place. You've been forgiven. And here's how you've been forgiven. According to to the riches of His grace. And I love the distinction here. It doesn't say out of His riches. It says according to His riches. Let me explain what I mean by that. If you're forgiven out of God's riches, it's like you go and ask a millionaire for a donation. And he reaches in pocket and hands you 25 bucks. That's out of His riches. But it's not according to His riches. It doesn't, it doesn't translate to the amount of money he's got. According to his riches is when he writes your check for $25,000. That's according to his riches. So God has forgiven us not just out of his riches, but according, in proportion to his riches, which are limitless, infinite. God has forgiven us. In 
In fact, he's lavished grace on us in excess, more than enough. That's what the reckless love of God is all about. It's the prodigal love. Needless, incredibly high in price. Third thing he's done, he's made known to us the mysteries of his will. According to his kind intention, he purposed in him to view the administration suitable to the fullness of time, summing up all things in Christ in heaven and earth. I'm going to end with this. We're only going to get three today because of time. We'll pick up next week. Paul's writing to a, a generation of people who many of them had been in, in influenced by this Gnostic heresy that somehow God was way out here and there were intermediaries to get to God. And if you got that revealed a secret, then maybe you could get a little closer to God, but he really couldn't come to you. Because earth was evil, you were evil. If God came down here, it might mess him up. So what Paul's saying is, listen, the mysteries of his will, he's revealed to us in Christ. We, we get it. The light comes on. He's given us the pages of the Old and New Testament. He's made known to us the mystery of his will. He's given us the knowledge. Divine truth is now fully known in the gospel. We'll end with verse 10, with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times, literally an appointed time. He doesn't use the word here for clock, but he uses one for specific appointed time. The summing up of all things. Everything's going to be summed up. It's going to get tallied one day. And ultimately, verse 12, and we'll pick up in verse 11 next week, it's all for his glory. What Jesus did at the cross was for the glory of the Father. What he's doing in you now is for the glory of the Father. And the good news is it's the divine will of God. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Just an understanding of what you've done. And God, help us to get who we are in Christ. We've been bought at a price. We've been ransomed in full. Satan doesn't have a hold on us anymore. God, if there's somebody here this morning that this just sounds like good news, they've never heard it, it's anyone that would want to come to faith in Christ, God, I pray today would be the day of salvation. God, I pray they would talk to somebody, me at the back or one of their leaders or somebody they know and trust their walk with Christ, that they would today give their life to Christ. God, for many in this place who've done that, they've trusted you as their Lord and Savior. God, would you overwhelm them with your love and what you've done in their lives and who they are in Christ. The truth of that should change the way we live tomorrow and the next day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Actually,